Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for listening. Special thanks goes out to my Patreon subscribers. I really appreciate the support, and I hope you're enjoying that content. Let's talk today about Joshua, and the curriculum has us covering chapters 1 through 8 and 23 to 24. So not a lot of chapters to read this time. I'm actually going to add a couple of highlights from a few other chapters, but let's start here. I think kind of the overview for this is that faithful Joshua was an incredible man. Like it to Moses, really. I mean, in terms of his faith, in terms of his steadfastness, he begins this conquest of Israel that has been prophesied since Abraham, since the days of Abraham and promised to the children of Israel, but contingent upon their righteousness. And Israel never really finishes the conquest of this land, Canaan, which then was the land of Israel for a while and now is still a contested piece of territory on this planet. But this was the opportunity they had to become a great people. He gives them this land flowing with milk and honey, lots of trade routes, I mean, there was every reason why they could have become great had they been righteous. They never finish, but Joshua makes a valiant effort to start. Now, a few things kind of as an overlook. First, all 12 tribes are helping under Joshua as members of the army to take cities and defeat the peoples and the kings of these different city-states in Canaan. And 31 cities are taken. Now, they were not burned except for one that the Lord told Joshua to burn, but most of the cities were left intact. There may have been, you know, walls that fell or breaches that were made, but the cities are basically intact. So, this is not a scorched earth policy. This is the opposite. Well, I mean, except for the sinners, and the sinners were like scorched earth, because the Lord does say to annihilate the most depraved of these societies. They are given choices. They can leave the territory, but most of them don't. So they are wiped from the face of the earth because their cup of wrath is full due to their own choices and their own iniquity. So 31 are taken. Now, it's all 12 tribes, as I said, that are in the army, even though Moses had given an inheritance on the east side of Jordan before he died to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh. And these are called kind of the Transjordan tribes because their inheritance, the lands of their inheritance that the tribes then could settle were on the east side of Jordan, not the west. And the rest of the tribes end up with a land inheritance on the west side of Jordan, the other nine plus the other half of Manasseh. And again, we're counting Ephraim and Manasseh as separate tribes to make up the 12. The Levites are not given a land inheritance. They are given some cities that they govern because they are spread out throughout all of Israel in order to provide the the Levitical priesthood rites that need to be done for the sacrifices and offerings and those kinds of events for all of Israel. So they don't have a specific area of land, but they are given some cities so that they can be throughout the tribes of Israel. Now that we've talked about who constitutes the army, let's talk about their general. Joshua is elevated in the eyes of the people, as was Moses, because the Lord performs this great miracle right at the beginning of his ministry, after Moses has been translated. But the hosts of Israel, all those men from all those different tribes, are never at the same caliber as their general. They have not really turned themselves wholly to righteousness. So their conquest of Canaan is as limited as their faith or as their obedience And they never fulfill the promises that could have been theirs because they are kind of half-baked in their righteousness. They do follow Joshua. They are more faithful than their fathers were because their fathers, remember, when the spies came back with the report of this wonderful land, but that the people were strong, their fathers refused to fight. They just, they try to elect their own leader to take them back to Egypt to be slaves again. I mean, this is really awful and weak faith. So they were marched around the wilderness for, you know, all those years so that they could die off. And now this next generation is given the same opportunity. They never fully take this opportunity because, again, they keep going back to the gods, to the strange gods 
of Canaan. And they never complete the conquest because of that. And they're troubled by these people for the period of time that we're going to talk about next week that we could refer to as the Dark Ages of Israel during the time of the judges where they are continually plagued by other peoples who want to conquer portions of Israel or parts of them. And they could have cleared the land completely and they could have become strong as a people and protected as a people. And you'll remember that this is what happened with the Nephites, who had the same law of Moses, the same opportunities, that if they would obey that law, they could become a strong and blessed and prosperous people, as long as they worship the God of the land, meaning the God of this country, America, who is Jesus Christ. But the Nephites, from time to time, fulfilled that and were incredibly blessed, incredibly prosperous, and protected against their enemies, the Lamanites. The people in Israel could have been the same as those righteous Nephite nations before the collapse of the Nephite society. And they weren't. They just never really took that opportunity to fulfill their part of of the needed righteousness so that God could bless them with that kind of national strength. So let me mention a little bit about the geographical territory here in the land of Canaan that becomes Israel. It was challenging. I mean, it's a really pretty small territory, 139 miles from north to south, or basically from Dan to Beersheba, which is pretty much the length of the land, north to south, 139 miles. But the width varies from only 20 miles from the coast in the north to about 40 miles in the south. So 20 miles. And then it's as wide as 40 miles in the south, but only a hundred and just under 40 miles north and south. This is basically the size of the U.S. state, New Jersey. So if you've got a map and can look at New Jersey, you'll see that this is a small territory. So it's kind of amazing that so many big battles happen here. And part of that is, I mean, there's some of the length or the difficulty of the battles is, is because of the terrain. Especially in the north, there are a lot of kind of mountainous areas not super high mountains, but but definitely high enough that it's a problem to go from one place to another without having to, you know, go up a mountain, down the next valley, up another one to, to engage an enemy or to come to another city. So many times you know, there's great physical effort involved in moving this army from one place to another. In other words, it's a challenging land to launch a campaign like this to try to clean out all the Canaanites. But again, the Lord had promised this again and again Nobody really takes him up completely on this offer to become a well-established nation that is able to be protected by the Lord. Also, I wanted to mention that it takes seven years for Joshua's conquest. One year in the south, and in that first year, he basically conquers most of the southern territory of Canaan. Six years in the north, and again, it might be because of that geographical complexity or also just the fierce opposition of some of the Canaanite cities and kings. But he does eventually, with the armies of Israel, conquer 31 of those kings and cities. And then at the end of his ministry, Joshua divides the land on the west side of Jordan to the nine and a half tribes that will stay there and settle in those lands, and then again assigning cities to the Levites. Okay, let's start right at Joshua chapter 1. And again, just the highlights. I'm sure there are other parts here that you've enjoyed, and I hope that that's certainly true. But let's start with verse 4 and 5. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. So God is promising him this entire territory for Israel. There shall not be any man, or there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. This is verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And then this often repeated command in chapter 1 verse starts with verse 6, be strong and of good courage. And that is repeated in several verses in this chapter. Let's look at verse 9 again. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Be strong and of good courage. And then again, the very last verse of chapter 1 at the very end, only be strong and of good courage. This is a real theme of Joshua and often, and many talks have been given on this 
lovely phrase, be strong and of good courage. We'll talk more about this at the end. Courage is a necessary quality to us. Strength and courage are necessary qualities for us to build Zion and prepare for the coming of the Lord and to get through the last days. We see the lack of it everywhere. So let's talk a little bit more about that as we as we get to the end of Joshua. But continuing to chapter 2, again, this is going to be fairly brief. Chapter 2 is the fall of Jericho. You remember this tremendous story, and maybe you remember this song, always a fun one. So Joshua sends spies to Jericho, and they end up in the home of Rahab the harlot. Now, there's some discussion in translations whether or not she was a harlot or a hostess, but there is a lot of kind of reference to her throughout Scripture in different words that seem to indicate she may have been a harlot. (laughs) And for that reason, it wouldn't have been that strange for some strangers wandering into the city to go to that place where she was. Single women wouldn't have run a hostel or a hotel or anything like that from from what we read in commentaries. And yet Rahab does a wonderful thing here and ends up being honored by the Lord and marrying one of the princes of Judah and becomes a progenitor to the Savior himself. So she is reclaimed and joins with the house of Israel as she is converted to the Lord. And she talks here about part of why she is so willing to help these spies. She hides them. And even when the people of Jericho come or the military comes to look for those spies, she hides them and then tells them how to escape safely, which they do. So looking at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, Rahab says unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, and were on the other side of Jordan. And in verse 11, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now she gives quite the testimony here of the power of God as the people of Canaan have seen it. So she's an inhabitant of this land and she's saying everybody's heart melted when we heard of these things because obviously you have the power of this, of your God with you and he is demonstrating this incredible power. So She's ready to join with them. She she helps the spies, and they commit to her that if she hangs this cord out of her window, which is on the wall there, that they will make sure that the troops of Israel do not destroy whoever is in that home, and she gathers her family there for safety. The last verse of chapter 2, verse 24, the spies return to Joshua, and they say, "'Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land.'" For even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So they get this message and they pass it along that they're afraid of us already. The Lord is going to bless us in this way. Joshua chapter 3. Let's jump to verse 7. The Lord says unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. So he's already told Joshua this in chapter 1, but he's saying, Now I'm going to show all Israel that I am with you as I was with the great leader Moses. Let's go to verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Verse 13, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. So it's a river, right? This isn't the Red Sea. It's a river, so it has a current coming from up above, down, going toward the Dead Sea. So the Lord is saying that, you know, I'm going to stop the water that's coursing down, and it will pile up in a heap while you can walk through, as long as the Ark of the Covenant goes in first and then leaves last. It mentions also in this chapter that it was at the time of harvest when the River Jordan was very full. So this is a a substantial miracle that is very much in the same kind of style as Moses leading the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry land. So this is God magnifying Joshua as he did Moses. It doesn't necessarily make them all obedient because we know that faith does not follow signs. Nevertheless, he does show Israel that he is with Joshua. And then in verse 17, the priests that have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm 
or that bear, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. So notice this isn't just the dividing of water, or in this case, the stopping of a current of a river so that it can pile up on one side and people can pass by, but he also dries the mud from the bottom of the river because normally it would be pretty tough to pass through a riverbed that had been, you know, forever saturated with the river waters. So there are a couple of ways that this miracle happens that are so incredibly impressive. And again, we're talking about a host of about 3 million men, women, children, you know, their cattle, their sheep. It's a it's a huge company that passes over Jordan and goes into the land of Israel. So they place 12 stones in chapter 4 to commemorate this. And let's jump to verse 14. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. At least that's respect and maybe a little healthy fear in there as well. Looking at verse 21, he's speaking of the children of Israel saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come saying, what mean these stones that they had heaped up? Then ye shall let your children know in verse 22 saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. And verse 24, the last of chapter 4, then all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. So if you work it right, this miracle can strengthen your faith, and this can be a reminder to your children to believe in this great God. Again, they never really fulfill their potential here. Chapter 5, Joshua takes some time to circumcise all the men of Israel. And it mentions that while they were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't circumcise the children. And remember that all the men 20 and above who had rejected the opportunity to come into Canaan 38 years prior died during that wilderness time. So they haven't, um, Joshua takes some sharp knives and he circumcises the men of Israel, before they go into this campaign. Verse 3 mentions this. And then also again in verse 12, we want to take a look. The manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So we really have the end of an era. That 40 years of leaving Egypt, coming to Canaan, rejecting that opportunity, marching around the wilderness for the rest of the 40 years, and then coming in, all that time they were sustained with manna. But once the Lord takes them over Jordan in a miraculous halting of the waters, then once they're starting to eat from the land of Canaan, the manna ceases. <laughs> a mighty miracle that had lasted in an incredible way. We also know, of course, that their clothes did not wax old and their shoes did not wear out during that time. Chapter 6 recounts the amazing and legendary story of Jericho, right? So this is a pretty exciting time where the Lord instructs them on how to take this city. And he has the hosts of Israel walk around on the first day, walk around the city, and then return to camp. Second day, they walk around the city, return to camp. This goes on for six days. And on the seventh day, they march around the walls of Jericho seven times, and then at the signal, they sound the trumps, and the hosts of Israel give a mighty shout, and the walls come tumbling down. So a fun time to sing that song with your kids or listen to the BYU Men's Chorus version of that. It's pretty fun. And then they save Rahab alive and her family. She is rewarded for her help with the spies, and then in verse 27, the end of this chapter, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout all the country. So this great spectacle, which, I mean, the Lord makes a statement here, right? They don't even have to fight a battle. He tells them exactly what to do. And these incredible fortress walls of Jericho just crash flat onto the earth and the city is taken and the people destroyed. Chapter seven, we have then this you know, host of Israel who is feeling pretty pumped at the success that they've already had on the Transjordan side, as well as now this great defeat of Jericho without even really having to attack or assault that city. But in verse 1 of chapter 7, the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. 
For Achan, the son of so-and-so-and-so-and-so of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. So Joshua thinks that, okay, he doesn't know about this, again, this big act of unrighteousness. This is a cursed thing. We don't know exactly. It's some kind of garment, but it obviously is representative of the pagan worship, these terrible, terrible ways that, that the people of the land pretended to worship their deity. And I say pretend because that's not worship. That's just debauchery. And that's just an excuse for all kinds of terrible behavior. And the people of Israel had been warned again and again, you're not to take one thing. Don't take any cursed pagan thing. Not one thing. Well, Achan, you know, breaks the rule, takes this cursed thing. And then when Joshua sends a small group of men to go check out the next city, which is Ai, and they come back and they say, yeah, in verse 3, halfway through, let about two or 3,000 men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So it doesn't look like a very well-protected or numerous host in that city. So they go up with just a small group, and then it says at the end of verse 4 that they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote them, about thirty and six men, for they chased them. So then at the end of verse 5, the hearts of the people, that's the people of Israel, melted and became as water. So what happened? God has just given them this great victory over Jericho, and now they're driven back by a relatively unfrightening group in the city of Ai. And now Joshua, in verse 6, rends his clothes and falls to the earth and says, you know, why? Why did you do this? I don't understand. And the Lord tells him in verse 10 to get up. Why are you lying on your face? Verse 11, the Lord tells Joshua that Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it among their own stuff. So they've taken not only his garment, but also a bunch of silver, and then they hid it, the family of Achan. So the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies in verse 12. The Lord says, I'm not going to support them if they do this. And then comes a pretty strong lesson to the hosts of Israel, where God certainly could have revealed to Joshua who the thief was, who the one was who had taken this pagan item and the silver. But no, he wants to make a strong statement. So he tells Joshua to have each of the heads of the tribes of Israel pass before him. And he tells Joshua that it's Judah. And then all the people, the different groups of Israel pass by and he chooses the one and then he chooses the household. And finally he chooses Achan. So the whole hosts of Israel see this kind of parade while the Lord is directing Joshua to find the person who has committed this grievous offense against God and has taken away the strength from Israel because God will not support them if they are bowing to these pagan gods or planning to bow to them. And then, of course, Achan is taken out with his family and stoned outside of the camp of Israel. So this is a pretty strong lesson. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to talk about how so many people see Jehovah of the Old Testament as a harsh God. And and I repeat, he's dealing with a very tough people. So I was talking about some to someone with about this just this past week, and it kind of came out in a good way. I said, like, how do you parent children who every time you turn your back on them, they set the house on fire? Like, that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about you know, mild disobedience or slothfulness. We're talking about, you know, they're ready to torch their whole relationship with God. They're ready to compromise the whole hosts of Israel so God cannot bless them. So these are these are really rebellious children, and they're held together by a very thin string, by a very thin thread that kind of, you know, ties them to obeying Joshua and obeying the Lord. They, they fear them enough. They think, okay, maybe we, you know, we can do it now. God gives them these signs. They hear that the people are afraid of them. So they're kind of excited about that. But they, they can hardly hold that thought for, for over one battle before somebody's going to say like, oh, I'm going to take this because, you know, even though I've been told that this will destroy, this is the reason we are destroying these people at the command of God because they are so enveloped in sin because of these kinds of things. And yet I'm going to do it and I think I'm going to get away with it. So yeah, how do you parent children who every time you turn your back on them, they set the house on fire? Of course, you're going to have to be a lot more pointed in your lessons 
Of course, you're going to have to, you know, watch them like a hawk and then catch them quickly when they start to rebel so that you can try to teach them. They still have a choice as to how much they're going to learn, but that's what you do. Again, it's the people who are harsh. It is not Jehovah who is harsh. The people are so difficult, they never fulfill the destiny that was theirs. Very different from Lehi's family and, of course, Nephi and Sam and their posterity, who really were able to prosper because they did wholly turn to the Lord their God and worship him in the way he had designated. Very different. And the contrast is kind of startling when you think about it, but it's it's all because they had chosen to be obedient in the new country, with Lehi's family having left before the fall of Jerusalem, and these people in the land of Israel never made that choice as a group. There's another nice connection to the Book of Mormon here coming up in chapter 10. So, and this is not one of the chapters we read, but I think there's something kind of fun here that is worth noting. This is when they are fighting the Amorites, another one of the Canaanite tribes. I'm looking at verses 12 to 14, Joshua 10, verse 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. In verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? Now, we don't have the book of Jasher, but apparently there was a book of Jasher that has been lost, and it was recorded there. Going on in verse 13, so the sun stood still in the midst of heavens and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Verse 14, and there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So another incredible sign. So how does this connect to the Book of Mormon? Maybe you remember, this is in Helaman chapter 12. Wonderful chapter, by the way, and if you're ever feeling arrogant, this is a great chapter to read because the Lord starts out and says, you know, man is less than the dust of the earth, for the dust moveth hither and thither at the command of God. In other words, God can move mountains because they will obey. But when he commands us, sometimes we think, you know, we sit back and say, well, let me think about it for a while. And, or we just flat out rebel or or refuse. So the Lord is saying, man is pretty quick to iniquity and slow to do good and all that kind of stuff. It's a pretty, pretty humbling summary of how rebellious his children can be. And then when he's talking about how the dust moves hither and thither, the command of God, he goes on, and this is, this is Mormon, by the way making an editorial comment in the book of Helaman. And he says, Yea, and if he say unto the earth, Move, it is moved. Yea, if he say unto the earth, Thou shalt go back, that it lengthen out the day for many hours, it is done. Now, notice that. If he say unto the earth, Go back, so that it lengthens out the day for many hours, it is done. In other words, well, he's going to clarify here in a minute. Let me read it first. And thus, according to his word, the earth goeth back, and it appeareth unto man that the sun standeth still. Yea, and behold, this is so, for surely it is the earth that moveth, and not the sun. And behold, also, if he say unto the waters of the great deep, Be thou dried up, it is done. Behold, if he say unto this mountain, Be thou raised up, and come over and fall upon the city, that it be buried up, behold, it is done. This is from Helaman 12, verses 13 through 17. So let's stop and think about this for a second. Mormon is editing the Book of Mormon, all these different books, putting them together into this Book of Mormon record, you know, sometime before 400 AD, right? So this is 400 years-ish after the death of Christ, When did the rest of the world figure out that it was the earth that moved and not the sun? Well, the earliest that I know that that theory was floated in any kind of big way was by Copernicus in the year 1543. And then Galileo got in serious trouble with the Spanish Inquisition in the early 1600s, around 1610, where he realized that, again, it was the earth that was moving rather than the sun. And this was heresy back then to the Catholic Church. So he was imprisoned, and he was actually a pretty old man. And they said, well, if you come out and and deny what you have said, then we'll let you out of prison. So he came before the court of the Inquisition, and he, he said, okay, 
okay, the earth doesn't move. It's the sun that moves. And then under his breath, the story says that he said, and yet it does move, speaking of the earth, because he knew it did. And they just didn't want to relinquish their hold over the control of of information. So he was released at that point, but he was pretty old. At any rate, what I'm saying here is that God has revealed all these things to his prophets. Abraham knew about the planets. He knew. He had seen the creation. Moses had seen the creation. They understood how things worked. And the prophets can always tap into this kind of knowledge in a way that the world, you know, that kind of stumbles forward in the dark and little by little comes to understand things much later, much later. And I'm certainly not suggesting that Mormon was the first one who knew this. I'm just saying you know, why do we bet against a God who can reveal the mysteries of everything to his people if they are righteous and if they choose to be obedient to their covenants? Light, truth, intelligence, one of my favorite themes. And this is available to us through our covenant keeping. And when we don't keep our covenants, we limit ourselves. We limit our light. We limit the truth that we understand. We limit all kinds of information and knowledge and and complexity of of the good things of the world to understand if we limit ourselves to what the world knows to the secular and so many in our in our struggle between you know so-called science and so-called religion you know people so often default to science and while i again my phd is a science degree i do love research i love to read it i love to participate in it nevertheless I never doubted from the beginning that God always had all the answers. And in our, you know, I think it was Albert Einstein who said about research that if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. So there was some humility coming from a very, very intelligent man. And we need to have that same humility to understand that, you know, why bet against God with any of the philosophies that may come from whatever quarter, even if they're claiming this to be, you know, the latest and greatest science? Really? Can it stand up to God's perfect omniscience where he knows everything, all things? There's no real beginning. There's no real end. But if there were, he knows it from, from alpha to omega. He knows all things. So I think that's kind of a fun little moment where Joshua seems to stop the sun to lengthen out the day while the armies of Israel fight the Amorites. But really, when this is reported by Mormon in the book of Helaman, he says, well, we know it just looked like the sun was stopped because really it's the moon that moves, not the sun. Nice little tidbit. Sorry, I go off on those things because I like them so much. Now, you may remember that Joshua was in his late 50s when he and Caleb and the other spies go in to scout the land. And that's before the people of Israel reject the report of the spies telling them that it's too hard to take the Canaanites. So Joshua was a then marching around the wilderness with Moses and the tribes of Israel for the rest of those 40 years. And he's not a young man when he comes into Canaan. He's most likely in his 90s. So here he is doing a seven-year campaign to help the children of Israel have an inheritance, which he does. He follows what the Lord wants. And in, in chapter 13, the Lord kind of releases him from his part of that campaign Uh, Verse 1, Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. So the Lord is saying, okay, you've done your part. But then in verse 7, now therefore divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Remember, the, the other two and a half tribes have inheritances on the east side of Jordan. This is the west side of Jordan. And the Lord is saying, you have done your part. There is a foothold in this land now. And there is enough territory that has been freed from these Canaanite kings with their cities intact. So you're going to end up being able to move right into houses and into cities. And there are vineyards planted and different, you know, orchards and fruits and all kinds of things, trees growing in this land that you're not going to have to plant. And you're going to get to reap the bounty of this land And as long as you're righteous, you can drive out the rest of the tribes. And this is now an individual tribal job. So they each have an inheritance, a section of the land that Joshua gives unto them by lots. They kind of divide it. And then by lots, they draw for these nine and a half tribes, assign some cities to the Levites. And now it's their job, these individual tribes, to clear their land and let the Lord fulfill his is vision for them, which is that they can have this whole area. Now, there's a nice tribute to Caleb. And again, remember, 
that Joshua is an Ephraimite and Caleb was from the house of Judah. And they were the two of those 12 tribes, of the 12 spies, one from each tribe, that Moses sent into the land the first time. And they're the ones who came back and said, let us go in and take what the Lord has given us, because surely he will fulfill his promises. And the people wouldn't believe them. They believed the other 10 that were afraid. So Caleb has remained faithful. Now, Caleb was younger than Joshua by probably at least 15, 16 years. He was 40, and he says this in chapter 14. Let's jump to verse 6 and read several of these verses. The children of Judah come to Joshua, and Caleb says, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God concerning me and thee in Kadesh Berea. Forty years old, this is verse 7, Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from there to espy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, in verse 8, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So he was faithful to God, and he knew that God would keep his promises, But and Joshua with him, but the other ten spies let their hearts melt and were afraid. And then in verse 9, Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. Now notice this phrase, Holy followed the Lord my God. He's already said it once in verse 8. Here it is again in verse 9. Now verse 10, And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, ever since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. So he's he's 85. Joshua is now past 100, but Caleb is now 85, and he says, in verse 11, as yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Verse 12, now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakins, again, remember those are the kind of the giants of the land. I mean, they weren't giant giants, but they were very large men. And they were scary because they were much larger than the average man. So the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. In other words, I will finish the task in my inheritance. And even though these Anakins have come back, I'll do what the Lord wants me to do. And as the Lord will be with me, I'm going to drive them out. So Caleb understands. He has the vision. He's been righteous from the beginning. Only he and Joshua survived the 38 and a half years in the wilderness. And now he's old and he's saying, can I have the inheritance that was promised to me and I will clean that inheritance from the Canaanites because he is righteous. And Joshua in verse 13 blesses him and gives him Hebron for an inheritance. And then it becomes an inheritance, verse 14, of Caleb, the son of all those people, because he, again, why? Because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. So look at that contrast. Again, we have not too many who do this, but all who do this are blessed of the Lord. He wholly followed the Lord. He completely, he didn't waffle, he didn't complain, he didn't murmur, he wasn't afraid. He knew that if he did what was right, the Lord would keep his promises. And we're going to, again, tie that in at the end. Then let's jump ahead quite a bit to chapter 18. Joshua doesn't die immediately after the Lord kind of releases him from his campaign and has allowed him now to pass that along and delegate that to the different tribes to clear out the land of the rest of the Canaanites. But in chapter 18, looking at verse 3, Joshua says unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? So they still haven't done it. This is a few years later, before Joshua dies, and they still haven't done it. They had great victories with Joshua. They saw how the Lord was with them. And yet now that they have their own territory, they get kind of lazy. They don't fulfill this admonition to cleanse the land. And this is going to become a problem for them, which Joshua warns them again about chapter 22. Let's look quickly at that. This again was not in the reading. Some of these interim ones were not, but they think they're all kind of um, interesting to look at. So now in chapter 22, Joshua tells the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to go back to Transjordan and says in verse 2, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. 
Verse 3, you have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. So he's giving them thanks for sticking it out, even though they had left their families and their cattle or whatever their household items were on the east side of Jordan, where their inheritance was. Again, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And Joshua's now releasing them. He says, you can go back to your families, but again, clear the land in your own areas, right? And so the, these two and a half tribes go to cross Jordan and go back to their families. And on the other side of Jordan, they build this, this big monument of stone. The nine and a half tribes hear about it. And they, and they get really worried because they think, oh my goodness, they've gone and built an altar to the strange gods of Canaan. And because of that, we're all going to be cursed because they've so quickly departed from the ways of the Lord. So verse 16, thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, what trespass is this that ye've committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord and that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against your Lord. In verse 20, we see that the strong lesson that the Lord gave to the children of Israel all the way back after Jericho is remembered by them. It says in verse 20 of chapter 22, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man perished not alone in his iniquity? In other words, like one person can ruin things for all of us if we go you know, lusting after these strange gods, these pagan gods in their in their pagan worship. And interestingly here, the two and a half tribes that are going across to the east of Jordan say, no, like we didn't do that. And you can, you know, God can can testify and judge us in this because we're not doing that. Verse 25, for the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and children of Gad, ye have no part in the Lord. So in other words, we're afraid that your children might kind of separate from our children because we're on the east side of Jordan and you're on the west. So this Jordan making, that God has made this Jordan River a separation between us, we wanted to build this not for us worshiping any false gods, but in verse 27, that it may be a witness between us and you, that our generations after us and our generations after us, that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings." and our sacrifices, etc., that your children may not say to our children in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. So verse 29, God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings anyway. So once Phineas realizes that, okay, this was not a pagan offering, this was a monument to try to bind these tribes to the other tribes, even though Jordan separates them, that they will be able to to recognize that, no, we're all the same house of Israel. And in, when the word gets back to the general camp of the nine and a half tribes, in verse 33, the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God and did not intend to go up against them in battle or destroy them. So they were ready to go to war with these two and a half tribes to try to preserve you know, Israel from the cursings that could happen. But then, as I mentioned a minute ago, Joshua is going to warn them of their future weakness. So chapter 23, let's look at the end of verse 2. So he, he gathers everyone together and he says, I am old and stricken in age, verse 3, and ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. So let's just review. You know, God has done all these wonderful things to us in verse 5, and the Lord your God he shall expel them from before you, speaking of the rest of the Canaanites, and drive them from out of your sight. And ye shall possess their land, as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Next verse 6. Be therefore very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. We're going to skip to verse 8. But cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. So they were righteous enough with Joshua to fulfill a big part of that invitation. But he says, now finish it, finish it. God will be with you. But then, and he reminds them of promises made before in verse 10, one man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He it is that fighteth for you as he hath promised you. So listen, you know, verse 11, take heed. See that you love the Lord your God. In verse 12, else if ye do in any wise go back 
and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even those that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you. Verse 13, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. So Joshua has seen what the Lord has shown him, and that's the future of Israel, which does end with ignominy. As we know, the northern tribes are taken and hidden for a long time, and then the southern tribes are taken captive into Babylon. Why? Because they wouldn't fulfill this invitation that the Lord had offered them, this great mission. It's kind of like, you know, manifest destiny in the United States, where we felt like we were going to go from coast to coast because the Lord had authorized the expansion of this culture because they were they were righteous enough. They did worship the God of the land, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we're seeing faith diminish amongst the, the people all over the world. Certainly in the United States, it's documented well that fewer and fewer people believe in God, fewer and fewer people associate with any religion or go to church to worship God. So we have, we have a real falling off of faith in this country and the blessings that have been fulfilled in the past to more righteous generations are diminishing. And I think we can see that when we look around, when we look at the news, that, that we're not being protected at the same level that we have. We're not prospering at the same level that we have in other days. And how could that not be connected to a, to a loss of faith? There are still a lot of good people around. Don't get me wrong. Still a lot of good people. And God will establish Zion on this continent. So there will be enough of the righteous who choose God and who choose to become a Zion people that there will still be great promises fulfilled. But as the time of the Gentiles is passing, I hope we will remember that there have been many people who have been offered wonderful, wonderful promises of protection and prosperity, safety for themselves and their children if they would worship God. And when they don't, those blessings are withdrawn. I think we're seeing it now. Going on here in Joshua 23, one of the last great speeches that he gives to the house of Israel. Where are we? We're in verse 14 now. So he says, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. Skipping a little bit. Not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Verse 15, Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. When, in verse 16, ye have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given unto you. So there it is again. Moses prophesied the same thing. If ye would only... Be faithful to God, completely faithful, wholly faithful to God, as Caleb was, as Joshua was, as Moses was. Then all these great promises could come to you and your children. Protection, flourishing, prosperity, chasing out all all the pagans from the land, all the Canaanites, so that they're no more among you. They don't vex you. They don't try to take your stuff. They don't try to seduce you into worshiping their false gods. And all that could have happened had they remained righteous. They did. They never really accomplished full righteousness. Here and there, we're going to see in the times to come that, yes, one rises up or a few rise up that are righteous for a while, but never do they fulfill this promise. And as prophesied after many, many, many opportunities, the first, the northern kingdom ripens in iniquity, and then the southern kingdom. Such a tragedy. Again, what are we doing about that? The Lord is inviting us now to become a Zion people. We're in the last days. This is the last huge task to be accomplished by the people of God, is to become worthy of Zion so that we can usher in the coming of Christ and build the holy city. So what are we choosing? Are we living beneath our privilege? Or are we accepting this great opportunity and trusting that the Lord will strengthen us to accomplish our desires if we remain faithful? Chapter 24, the last chapter in the book of Joshua, verse 2, Joshua in his last address to the people, he's gathered them all together again and says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So he's quoting the Lord here now, and he speaks of many things that the Lord has done for this people. 
And then in verse 13, I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not, do you eat? We talked about this, how these cities were not laid waste. The vineyards, the, the orchards, the, all the great plenty of the land was theirs in homes that they did not build and eating of fruit that they did not plant. Verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And this famous verse now, verse 15 of chapter 24, quoted often, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As you know, this is usually shortened to just this these parts. Choose you this day whom ye will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But he does specify, you know, you have all these bad examples in front of you. You have all these pagan issues that were even before the flood when they were wiped out because of that kind of iniquity. And here again, I have led you to wipe out the Canaanites because their cup of wrath was full. Don't fall into this trap. Cleanse the land. Finish the job that I have given you. And if you do, it will be a great blessing to you and generations and the world will be blessed through you. But if you don't, I'll raise up others and you will lose this land. And that is exactly what happened. They did lose the land and were taken captive into other places. Verse 23 of chapter 24, close to the end now. Now, therefore, this is Joshua. He knows what's going on. Put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. He knows that already in just these few years since Joshua led them in battle, that they have already taken in some of these pagan objects and forms and practices of worship. And he's saying, put them away from you. Just Can you just be wise? And they are not wise. In verse 29, it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And then he is buried. In verse 32, we see the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, remember, This was Joseph's request when you are saved from slavery in Egypt by the Lord, who will bring you out with a mighty arm, make sure to carry up my bones to the promised land. And they did and carried with them for all those years in the wilderness. So this was a, this was a promise fulfilled. So they bring up these bones of Joseph and finally they bury them in Shechem in a parcel of ground with Jacob bought. So Joseph is finally and his bones are finally to rest in the promised land. And then in verse 33, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, who is the current priest, dies. And he is followed in this capacity by his son Phineas. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of these messages that I think are are so important. And I've mentioned a few of them already, but I do want to talk about courage because it is such a great message in the book of Joshua to be strong and of good courage. And they do show courage under Joshua's leadership on some occasions, some big occasions. And they, they are more courageous than their fathers were, who would not even try to take this great blessing that the Lord wanted to give them. So there is some courage, but then they fail again. They don't have enough courage to stay true to God. They very quickly and persistently start to incorporate pagan practices and to go into the, the same debasing licentious rituals and practices that are the practices of the of the Canaanites. They never get them out of the land as the Lord has commanded them again and again. So they try to live this sort of uneasy, you know, collaborative life and they are they are constantly seduced by those pagan practices, which ultimately cost them trouble after trouble, and eventually it costs them their inheritance in this land that flows with milk and honey. So I looked up some statements on courage that I like. The first is by Aristotle. Courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees the others. Isn't that a great thought? Courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees the others. In other words, if you have all these other qualities, but you don't have the courage to stand up when they are challenged 
and you don't have the courage to persist in obedience or in those good characteristics against you know, some kind of pushback, then what good are all the other qualities? You must have courage in order really to, to manifest any of the other good qualities which the Lord desires of us. In other words, you know, we could want to be a good people. We could even desire to be a Zion people. But if we don't have the courage to do that in the midst of Babylon, then what good is that desire? It will never manifest unless we have the courage to stand up to the secular, the, the courage to stand up to even the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, and the courage to stand up for what's right, even in our own midst. Maybe some of you have heard, and we've talked about this, how Elder Holland went to BYU last August and was absolutely you know, pilloried for, for trying to stand up for truth and inviting the people on campus to do that. The teachers, the professors, the staff there, the administration. He called them to fulfill the purpose of BYU as envisioned by God through his prophets. And he said, this isn't happening. We have too many people here who are basically you know, having what he called friendly fire, meaning that they are attacking the church from within. And then really influencing some of these young, vulnerable students to think that, you know, Christ is a social justice warrior or that, you know, critical race theory is is the way to see the world or, you know, some of these other ideas that are really dividing them from their parents, you know, let alone all the gender nonsense that's going on where there's so much confusion that is so clarified in the proclamation. But, you know, now are we ashamed to even voice our support of the, of the family proclamation given by revelation to the church. I mean, it takes courage in order for us to do any of these things. Our children need courage because they're on the front lines sometimes. And we can help to give them that courage if we, if we understand what's required to have courage. So let me go on with a couple of other quotes. Being deeply loved by someone gives you strength while loving someone deeply gives you courage. Now, that's a beautiful thought by Lao Tzu. Being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. So let's put this in a spiritual framework. Being deeply loved by our Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ can give us strength. Remember that beautiful verse that says, we love him because he first loved us. That's, that's what I'm tapping into here. The love of our Heavenly Father and Christ for us are manifest. We've talked before about if we're not feeling it, something's wrong with our receptors. Because it is there. It is impossible that they don't love us. So we need to feel that love, which can strengthen us. And then when we love them deeply, it can give us courage. Mark Twain said it this way, Courage is resistance to fear mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Repeating, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. So it is when things are a little bit dicey that courage matters. When it is tested, it matters. So I wanted to to posit this, that what is required for courage is trust in the Lord. If we want to have spiritual and moral courage, the courage of our convictions, the courage to build Zion by becoming a Zion people and then waiting for the call from the prophet for the right time to establish Zion that will receive the Lord, we need this courage. And that requires trusting him, trusting him in his fulfillment of his promises, meaning that again and again, here are the children of Israel. It's like they didn't believe him. They didn't trust that the ones that came out of Egypt, remember how often they said, were there no graves in Egypt? We need to go back to Egypt, where they were slaves. Now, why would they want that? Because they didn't trust in the promises of the Lord. And trust is a choice. Trust is coming to know God the way he reveals himself to us. And he tells us that he is a God of truth, who will not lie, who cannot lie, who does not lie. And if we trust that and trust in his promises, What else matters? And what else could it have been that would have given courage to Joseph Smith to do all that he did in the face of such incredible persecution and ultimately death? The same with his brother Hiram. The same with the prophet Abinadi, who goes into Noah's court and says, you know, after I have delivered this message, it doesn't matter what you do. 
How could he do that? Because he trusted that the Lord would fulfill his promises to Abinadi. Because Abinadi was doing what the Lord wanted, that all of it would be worth it in the end. That the Lord would magnify Abinadi and that he would come forth in the morning of the first resurrection into the highest level of the celestial kingdom and be a god. And because Abinadi trusted that, as we see many of the Book of Mormon prophets promising at the end or stating at the end of their writings, at the end of their books, that I know that I'll stand before God, the pleasing bar of God, and that my garments will be white. In other words, they trusted that God would fulfill their promises to them because they had fulfilled the promises that they had made to the Lord in covenant, and they had done what they were foreordained to do. You know, there are so many examples of this. We're going to see some great examples coming up in the Old Testament, some wonderful stories of people who have courage to do what's right in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, even in the face of death. And they trust in the Lord, and that's what gives them courage. So I really would encourage all of you to consider how much do we trust the Lord? Do we really believe that he will keep his promises? Now, this requires a choice to believe. It requires the stretching of our faith, because God does not prove himself And he does not like it when he's challenged in this way. He's saying, the love is apparent if you have the the wisdom and the eyes to see. The, The miracles are there if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to understand. And if you will do that, you'll know me. You'll know me and you'll see that I'm a God that fulfills promises as I will for you. If you keep your covenants with steadfastness and courage. This was from the Old Testament student manual on Joshua. And I liked this statement. Embodied in these passages of scripture are the two principal essentials for security and peace. First, trust in God. There it is. And second, a determination to keep the commandments, to serve the Lord, to do that which is right. And those are, those are the two parts. If we trust God, we do what he says. If we don't really do what he says, it's often because we don't trust him and we think that we can hedge our own bets and that we can, you know, kind of play both sides against the middle. And, you know, I'll have one foot in Zion, but one foot in Babylon because I'm not sure the Lord's going to come through. So I want to kind of, you know, try to play both sides. That's that's never going to work for the Lord. It's got to be all in. So first, trust in God. And second, be determined to keep the commandments, serve the Lord and do that which is right. Latter-day Saints who live according to these two admonitions, trust in God and keep the commandments, have nothing to fear. My husband and I just listened again recently to David Bednar's conference speech from just this past April. And maybe you remember it. He took phrases from the great LDS hymn, um, Let Us All Press On. That's a hymn that I love. And I'm going to refer to it again here in a minute. He talked specifically about not heeding the wicked. So I wanted to read these words. I'm skipping a little bit around his talk, but this was all kind of in one section. Entering into sacred covenants and worthily receiving priesthood ordinances, yoke us with and bind us to the Lord Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. This simply means that we trust in the Savior as our advocate and mediator and rely on his merits, mercy, and grace during the journey of life. That's what we've been talking about, trust and rely. Living, this is Elder Bednar again, living and loving covenant commitments. Nice phrase there, living and loving covenant commitments creates a connection with the Lord that is deeply personal and spiritually powerful. And we've talked before in this podcast about how One of the greatest tools for learning and receiving light has to be obedience. Again, referencing a scripture I love in section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he that receiveth light and continueth in God, and the continuing God means obedience to the light that we have, right? So if we want that light, when we receive light, we have to be obedient and faithful to the light that we know, faithful to the commandments that we know, faithful to the covenants we have made. And then... He that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. This is the journey of life. Trusting in the Lord, relying on his merits, living and loving our covenant commitments, which creates that connection with the Lord because we are getting light from him, getting strength, getting understanding, and our trust can grow. And this connection is deeply personal. These are Elder Bednar's words again, deeply personal and spiritually powerful. So I love this con- that he's talking about our covenants. 
So I'm going to read that one more time without interruption. Living and loving covenant commitments creates a connection with the Lord that is deeply personal and spiritually powerful. And then a little later in this same section of his speech, Elder Bednar says, and this was beautiful. I I kind of rewound and listened to this a few times with my husband. We talked about, what does this mean? This This is pretty deep stuff right here, I think. Elder Bednar, I frankly do not have the ability to describe adequately the precise nature and power of our covenant connection with the resurrected and living Son of God. Now, that's the sentence that I went back on a few times. I frankly do not have the ability to describe adequately the precise nature and power of our covenant connection with the resurrected and living Son of God, but I witness that the connections with Him and Heavenly Father are real and are the ultimate sources of assurance, peace, joy, and the spiritual strength that enable us to fear not though the enemy deride. How important is this in a world like ours where the enemy is on every side, where Satan is having a heyday? Elder Bednar, as covenant-making and covenant-keeping disciples of Jesus Christ, we can be blessed to take courage for the Lord is on our side and pay no attention to evil influences and secular scoffing. That's a great phrase, secular scoffing. Okay, last part I wanted to share. (laughs) These always end up longer than I think. How does that happen? I'm going to share the words of this beloved hymn, Let Us All Press On. Honestly, it's been one of my favorites. I've actually spoken about this in Firesides as well, because I think the message of this song is so pertinent to our day. Plus, it's one of the militant hymns, so it can really get the blood roused up and hopefully inspire us to come to know the Lord better, to come to know Him so that we can trust Him, that we can keep our covenants and trust in the power of those covenant connections with the risen Lord. Listen to these beautiful words, hymn 243. Let us all press on in the work of the Lord, that when life is o'er, we may gain a reward. In the fight for right, let us wield the sword, the mighty sword of truth. We will not retreat, though our numbers may be few, when compared with the opposite host in view. But an unseen power will aid me and you in the glorious cause of truth. If we do what's right, We have no need to fear, for the Lord, our helper, will ever be near. In the days of trial, his saints he will cheer and prosper the cause of truth. And then this wonderful chorus, I'm actually going to read you the alto line because that's the one that I sing and it has more words. (laughs) Fear not courage, though the enemy deride. We must be victorious, for the Lord is on our side. We'll not fear the wicked, nor give heed to what they say, but the Lord, our Heavenly Father, Him alone we will obey. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. Come join me on Patreon if you're interested. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash choosing glory. Invite all of you to come and help support this podcast if you'd like to. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>